Hello, and my name is Peter Rushma, and I'm your host today of a Half Dozen Things podcast. Half Dozen Things is a podcast for business owners and professionals just like you. Whether you're an underdog hungry for success or you're already smashing it but want to continue to level up, we're here each week for you to get insight and learning from the very best in the business. No fluff, no BS and no self-proclaimed gurus talking about how easy business or life is. Just real, frank and raw conversations. I'm buzzing to be joined today by Chris Powell from Rotherus Solicitors. He is a specialist transport lawyer who helps transport operators if they face public inquiries or supports drivers at driver conduct hearings. Today's episode is fascinating and I'm really pleased that I've got Chris on the show for you to listen to. So I do hope you enjoy it. Take a listen, share it with your friends. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be joined today by Chris Powell from Rotherus Solicitors, uh, transport specialist uh, solicitor. And uh, I've been waiting to have Chris on the podcast for a while, but he's a very busy in-demand guy. Um, So, yeah, it's really, really exciting to have you and uh, be able to hear your wisdom on today's session. So, Chris, are you able to just, uh, for the listeners, be able to introduce yourself a little bit? Um, I know we met on LinkedIn and I dropped you a message and we've we've sort of toed and froed trying to get you... uh, trying to get you on but you do a lot of public inquiries you're very busy in the transport sector um are you able to just tell us a bit more about what you do in your background is that okay yeah sure very very happy to Peter. and yes i know i've had to rearrange a few times haven't i that's the nature of the job unfortunately i find i've suddenly got a last minute hearing turning up and so things things shift around but uh we're, we're here now which is absolutely which is uh yeah so uh, a little bit about myself uh what so I, I started, how did I start in all of this? I actually, I actually started off in, in law, not doing, not doing law at all. I started off doing a history degree uh, at university. And at the end of that, I then decided that probably it'd be sensible to get a, get a job where you could actually do something practical. So I ended up going down the solicitor's qualification route after that. And uh, after, I think it must have been close to five years or so in higher education, I ended up at a firm specialising in criminal defence originally in Nottingham. Uh, I'd always liked the idea of criminal defence. I always found it an interesting area. And so I, I ended up in a rather odd little job working in what was effectively a police station call centre. So that's a... A call centre for people arrested by the police, brought into custody, held for court the next morning, or maybe held on something a really minor matter like a drunken disorderly, something where there's not going to be a police interview, there's not going to be a formal investigation. Um, it's you sometimes it's just picking a drunk student up from the night before and holding them. And they're entitled to legal representation, but at that time only over the telephone. So I spent a good uh, oh, many months, probably over a year, uh, sitting uh, sitting in a in a call centre, speaking to uh, people held in custody suites all around the country. Uh, usually, um, the worse for drink or something else, and it was a bit of a, a an odd way to get into the into law. And then, after a little while, I ended up actually moving to another department in that firm where I was going down to the police stations in person and actually representing during interviews under caution, either by uh, the uh, police or CID or something like that. But it was still very much criminal criminal defence at that point. And uh, after a couple of years there, probably, I moved to uh, another firm in Nottingham and started doing some other areas of law. I did, uh, I did a little bit of criminal still. I, did a training contract, which is uh, when you actually qualify to be a solicitor. It's like a two-year apprenticeship. Did some private family law, so uh, effectively rich people divorcing each other <laughs> and arguing over who gets the yacht, uh, which didn't really uh, didn't really take my interest too much. Uh, then sounds, sounds interesting to me. Uh... Well, it is interesting. I, I I I could tell you some stories. I probably shouldn't, though, but. But I, okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I do remember vividly having to uh, ha- having to spend a lot of time 
um, working with another solicitor who was trying to negotiate how much a particular mooring in, I think it was Menorca or something, was worth because that went into who, where this financial split happened. Anyway, it was very strange. That's and then, first world problems, that is, Chris. Well, <laughs> you could say that. And then, and then the next training seat was absolutely opposite. I did a corset and quarter protection. I don't know if you know quarter protection. It's, it's when somebody doesn't have mental capacity to make decisions for themselves. They are effectively held by the state in a in a care home or some kind of uh, some kind of uh, safe um, uh, home where they're looked after. But then, if there are arguments or discussions had about what's in their best interests then they've got a right to a solicitor. Uh, the other family members might have a different view. So it gets it gets very interesting. And so going from one extreme with the family law, I found myself spending oh, probably six months or so, a lot of it visiting various uh, care homes and institutions across uh, Sheffield, North Yorkshire, and uh, South Yorkshire, and kind uh, of you know speaking to people, helping them out, and that sort of thing. So a complete, complete change. And then finally, I, my third seat was actually in transport law, and that was the first time I actually uh, actually started to experience transport law, and it was fascinating. Um, it was, it it had elements of uh, sort of criminal to it, in that some of those some of the cases. Uh, were being prosecuted by the Driver and Vehicle Standards Agency. There's largely a regulatory side of it, which is not quite criminal, but it's similar. It's a court hearing at which allegations are put forward and um, ultimately action is taken at the end of it. And so I, I did a seat, uh, a training contract seat in that, and I decided I found it so interesting, I wanted to qualify into it. And that's what I did. I then went and joined a specialist transport firm, which just did nothing but transport law. It was a very niche practice. And for a few years, I was going up and down the country, representing at public inquiries, visiting operators, drivers, doing all sorts, really. And then about two years ago now, just over two years ago, I moved to where I am now, which is Rotherus Solicitors. Uh, Rotherus has been, it's, it's a firm which does all sorts of, we do all sorts of areas of commercial law, um, private client law, all sorts. But we've got a, a transport department which has been um, doing transport law for, for decades now, One of probably one of the earliest to be operating in this field. And so there's that wealth of experience which has been really helpful to draw on. And uh, and I'm, I'm now a senior associate at Rotherers and I'd say probably well, I'd say 90 to 95 percent of my practice, I imagine, is transport regulatory work. And then I do a little bit of motoring defense on the side. So drink drivers and uh, speeding tickets and that sort of thing. But but okay. that, that's normally when it's covering colleagues for their holiday or something like that. <laughs> that's excellent. I, I find it I find it amazing that you've you've been through all these different areas of, of law, including, you know, what I would think. Um, is is really interesting, like uh, certainly family law, and then and then looking at certainly helping people who uh, potentially aren't haven't got the capacity to be able to help themselves. I I imagine that's really quite interesting. But then to land on transport and go, this is really interesting because I have that same that same sort of passion for the sector, and I find it I find it really rewarding helping small to medium operators make sure that they're doing things properly and uh, and and what have you and i'm sure you you get that same level of satisfaction as well when you help to help 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 your clients as well so oh, it's it's a great feeling being able to turn a help help someone turn a business around and get them from a position where they could be losing everything to you know having a, a bright future ahead of them because it, yeah. it's, it's very rewarding yeah, absolutely, fantastic. With uh, just before we move on to the next area, which is around what the role of uh, a, a transport regulatory lawyer is, just are you able to just clarify for? Because I think there'll be some transport managers who listen who don't fully understand the difference between the criminal elements, the regulatory elements of uh, what what you cover and what that that really means. And it it actually helped me as well. I think so. Are you able yeah. to just sort of cover what the key differences are there? Absolutely, and and is that I, a good question? By the way, I don't know if that's. It's an absolute. It's an excellent question. I don't mind even 
I'm happy to admit, when I first started, my first dipped into transport law, it does seem confusing. Mm-hmm. You think, well, hang on, is it is this? Um, there's an interview under caution happening. Is this down the prosecution route? Is this down the regulatory route? Where's the intersection between the two? It isn't immediately clear. I, I think probably the best way I can explain it is uh, almost every transport-related um, infringement or problem is technically an offence. Not all of them, but but almost everyone. Strictly speaking, every single infringement that happens on your tachograph unit is classed as an offence, uh, and you could technically be prosecuted for it, even if it's a, a, a very minor one. But the vast majority of these are not prosecuted because otherwise there, there's, there's little in the way of public interest when it's a very minor matter. You know, one minute past your, your or you know, 44 minutes rest rather than break rather than 45 minutes or something like that. And so the majority of them aren't dealt that way. But when things get more serious and when you have drivers, perhaps, um, or, or evidence that suggests that drivers might be removing their tachograph cards to conceal the fact that they're going outside of their driver's hours uh, rules, in other words, driving tired and trying to hide it, that's when, obviously, the, there is an interest for the Drivers Legal Standards Agency to prosecute through the criminal courts. and so. A decision gets made when something when something comes to the attention of either the driving vehicle, well, usually driving vehicle standards agency. A decision gets made at that point after sometimes an interview process might be an interview under caution. What to do with that case? Whether it's something that can be dealt with by the traffic commissioner within the regulatory framework, which is not guilt or innocence. It's uh, it it's really about. Should that driver have action taken against their professional driver's license? Should that operator have action taken against their operator's license? Or should that be dealt with through the criminal arena? In other words, prosecuted the magistrates or the Crown Court, where criminal sanctions can follow. And then after that, you can still find yourself in front of the traffic commissioner. So it's usually about seriousness. It can go either way. But if I, to give you an, an indication, if you have a number of false record offences, so knowingly creating a false record, and that's usually when somebody has maybe a, a classic example is that they've uh, somebody's getting to the end of their driving shift for the day, they've got another forty-five minutes they wanted they need to take uh, a break, but maybe they're very close to home, so it does happen. Some people will remove their tachograph card, just drive that last bit, get home back 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 to home before it's you know without having to spend 45 minutes sitting sitting on the side of the road well what's happened there is they've removed they've knowingly removed their card Mm -hmm. they've infringed their driver's hours they've driven tired and it's a false record on the tachograph head Mm -hmm. and guidance suggests if you get much more if you get six or more of those or more than six of those you can be facing uh, ultimately, Crown Court proceedings and even in a term of imprisonment uh, if, mm-hmm. it's, if the circumstances are serious enough. Mm-hmm. So it's a triage system and it can go either way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think sort of just to the point that you've made around um, drivers, drivers removing their cards. And I don't know, I assume this must be your experience as well, because when I speak to other transport managers, they 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 say, well, well, drivers are idiots. They they should know better, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, even despite driver CPC, I still meet drivers on a regular basis who do not realise the ramifications of their actions sometimes, or the potential ramifications. And educating them um, can be enlightening, I think, um, because they often don't realise how how bad it could get. When they just do 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 because it's a small action and it's the thin end of the wedge, um, and and over time it can get can get worse. Um, thank you for how you've articulated that. Yeah, I, I would definitely just add to that. I I certainly agree. Um, drivers aren't idiots, but what yeah. can happen, and I, what I have seen happen is, particularly a new an inexperienced driver might join a place, learn from other drivers how practice happens. And bad habits creep in before you actually realise the implications of it. And certainly, yes. you know, 
not fully understanding what the implications from the regulator and, and the prosecutor's point of view. But anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you've articulated that way better than I did, <laughs> which was, <laughs> and I totally agree. Drivers aren't, drivers absolutely aren't stupid. They, um, but sometimes there's a level of misinformation or bad habit or bad practice. And sometimes you can't control the environment that someone's learned in. For example, you could have a very good person that um, would never intend to break the rules, but if they've grown up in an environment which is maybe not quite what it should be, they may not know. They may not know the the challenges. So, okay, brilliant. Um, okay, so the job of a transport regulatory lawyer, um, representing operators at public inquiries, uh, representing drivers at con- driver conduct hearings. Um, are you able to just tell me a bit more about what 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 your job looks like then now now that you're uh, in this role then? Yeah, very happy to. So. So if we take public inquiries, that's probably one of the, the biggest things that I do or the most frequent things that I do. Uh, as I'm sure you listeners know, public inquiry is, there are many reasons a public inquiry can be called, but it's usually when you're applying for a license or you hold a license, there is a problem somewhere. Either there's a problem with your, your, your background, your licensing background, pre- previous criminal convictions, or there's problems with how you're running your fleet now. And it all starts usually when uh, the operator or applicant will receive through their postbox or email account something called a calling in letter or call up letter. And it'll be a rather scary official looking letter from the traffic commissioner saying, we've decided to convene a public inquiry, we want to talk to you come to this location at this time and the things that tra- these are the issues the traffic commissioner wants to consider why uh, and it's a list of allegations it might be something like the, the findings of an unsatisfactory dbsa maintenance report a roadside stop that happened on such and such a day where a bunch of wheel nuts were found to be loose or whatever it is and and that's 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 the usually the first inkling that the operator has that okay this, this is a problem now then normally a week or two after that they'll receive through the post a great big pack of papers known as the traffic commissioner's brief and this is uh it, it's really an evidence bundle it's all the allegations that they want to speak to you about this is it this is them in black and white if a dvsa have carried out an investigation this is their investigation report and the evidence they found and if they interviewed you in the process this is the interview transcript and it's at that point hopefully that the operator decides actually i'll i'll get some get some legal advice on this one and i frequently get a telephone call from an operator at the point they receive one of these letters and they say what 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 do i need to do and the first thing i say is let me have a look at those papers so that i can get up to speed with what we're dealing with what the allegations are, how serious they are. And then we will meet, we'll go through them together. I'll find out because because at the end of the day, the traffic commissioner only will have usually the DVSA officer's account and their own records, but they won't have the operator's account and they won't often know the full background. And so it's my job to speak with the operator, find out, first of all, whether we accept these allegations. Secondly, if we do, how it happened are there any mitigating factors is there extenuating circumstances then discuss what have we done to fix any problems that have been found so if for example you uh we've talked a lot about tachograph offenses let's talk about maintenance perhaps instead if a dvsa vehicle examiner's gone round inspected your fleet found a, a, a raft of problems issued you with prohibition notices gone through your maintenance records and found that you're, they're, you're, they're not being signed off as roadworthy or you've not got effective brake tests that have been happening. Well, the first question I'd ask is, well, are we doing those now? Are we, are we, have we moved to a better garage? Have we changed our own systems or procedures so that this can't happen again? Have we got a new transport manager in? Have we spoken to our garage? Have the vehicles had brake tests now? And the answer, if the answer is no, then we'll do that. And, and a large part of the role is helping the operator fix those shortcomings as quickly as possible so that when that public inquiry happens, 
we're able to say, or I'm able to say, if it is the case that we accept some of these allegations, we'll say, yes, those are accepted. Here are the reasons why it happened. Very unfortunate. Um, here's what we've done about it. And here is the evidence in black and white. The entire fleet's had, I don't know, um, full laden roller brake tests carried out and they've all passed. And we've also done maybe some further training or whatever it is. And uh, then it's that that's that's <laughs> that that's the big picture. Then it's the actual practicalities of it is presenting that case to the traffic commissioner and hope hoping as a result of that that we get a satisfactory decision. Brilliant. Okay, so um that's uh that's a really interesting because the the point is essentially the first part is what really a transport a good transport manager should be doing, which is making sure that everything is good. With clearly there's been a shortfall in the process somewhere or in the system, so it's trying to find those and carry out like a root cause analysis, so to speak, where what's gone wrong, how can we fix it and change those change those actions. What um how how often do and and I, I guess the challenging question is around somebody's found something wrong in their system and corrected it. And in some cases, it will be that it's an ongoing thing and people will knowingly know there's that there's a challenge and they need to correct it, maybe haven't spotted the warning signs. And sometimes people are just genuinely, um, uh, genuinely just don't know, don't know that there's an issue, for example. So um, what's the likely different outcomes i suppose of of that inquiry uh when when someone when an operator goes to meet the traffic commissioner yeah so i i quite see what, what you're saying i i've had this discussion a number of times if you if people often don't know what they don't know it, it's i it's usually when a problems happen when when there's been a serious compliance shortfall uh, there's, it's either because it was simply not on the radar of the operator. They hadn't realised that that was the level they had to meet, and therefore if they've not met it, it's because they didn't even know it was there. Yeah, of course. Other times, um, I'd say less frequently, they do know what's required, but they but corners are cut. Yeah. That, in my experience, tends to be less, uh, more infrequent, but it occasionally does happen. Okay. The view the traffic commissioner will take, I suppose, will depend on which class you fall into. Because if you, if they, if the traffic commissioner forms the view that you, you know what's required of you, but you deliberately decide not to, to, to do that because maybe there's a cost incentive to you to not doing it, then that looks awfully lot like an unfair commercial advantage. And putting commercial needs in front of the safety of the public, and that—that that is, that then has a, um, that then ha has a bearing on whether you can be trusted or the commissioner thinks you can be trusted going forward. If, however, it is down to a lack of knowledge, and the commissioner does accept and does feel that what's really happened here is somebody's not kept up to date, they've fallen behind. Maybe there are other circumstances that have meant that they've not been keeping to their requirements, but they've learned the lesson now and they can show that they've done something about that. They've maybe done further training courses and they've done what they can to turn the turn the business around. Then it's far easier for a commissioner to trust that person because it's a it's a sin of omission rather than a deliberate act, if you know what of I course. mean. And that's it obviously obviously as a transport lawyer, it's much easier to present a case when it's founded on that <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah absolutely okay great so um what um what's the difference with like a driver conduct hearing for example then so what what sort of things do you look at there are they are they taco infringements or are you more likely to see a challenge around the driver's check not being carried out properly um what sort of things are you are you dealing with with the driver conduct hearing for example there's a distinction, I suppose, between whether you're a, a PSV bus or commercial uh, passenger transport uh, driver or whether you're HGV, because actually the requirements are slightly different. As an HGV driver, the, the driver conduct hearing is held to consider your conduct 
as a driver and and it really relates to um your whether you've got um previous motoring offenses whether you've got tachograph offenses but it's all relating to uh your role as a driver on the psv passenger transport side it's slightly different because you're public facing usually you're carrying people about the remit for the commissioner is much wider. They can look at not just your conduct as a driver, but your conduct as a whole, anything else that's relevant. And that might include other offenses or negative conduct that you've done or had, totally unrelated to driving. The commissioner can consider that. So taking HGV, classic one will be uh, tachograph infringements. It might also be driving offences generally, and they don't actually have to be driving offences in an HGV. Okay. I've represented drivers who have received six points for using their mobile phone in their private car. Yes. Never committed a single offence or, or have any, had any points incurred through driving a HGV, but they can still be called to a driver conduct hearing. Yes. Because it all goes to the issue of whether they are taking the right approach to driving mm -hmm. so as a as a transport solicitor in that context it's about again going through the scary letter they receive finding out about the allegations taking their side of the story working out what's actually happened here and working out how we're going to present the case whether we're challenging the evidence whether we're accepting it if we are accepting it what are the extenuating circumstances surrounding that um, and how are we get best to present that if further training courses is required we can look into that and uh, the, the way driver conduct hearings work tend to be quite different to that of a public inquiry they, they tend to be far shorter and the commissioners I, i've had it, i've turned up and represented at a driver conduct hearing where there have been maybe 15 drivers in a room and they each get five minutes each to get through <laughs> right, okay. others have lasted half a day if it's particularly if it's connected to a full public inquiry hearing okay so it, it's quite a quite a mix okay fine and uh from a driver conduct hearing point of view that's interesting to hear how quick sometimes they can be i suppose there's much less complexity to potentially that there's a situation and something wrong has occurred and it's, it's it's a bit more of a straightforward thing but yeah one, one of the misconceptions i think i find when we do driver cpc training for example is that drivers think that their vocational license and their car driving license are are there's an element of separation and uh, sometimes they don't realize that if they get caught in their car doing things that they shouldn't be that that can have an impact on their vocational license and potentially end up in a driver conduct hearing so um yeah really really good okay so a dvsa interview under caution what what does that look like for example so i've i've never experienced a, an interview under caution i have sat in on dvsa coming in and doing audits of an operator um on several occasions and usually we get a you know a traffic examiner come in or a vehicle examiner come in and they come and look around the vehicles look through our paperwork what what's the key difference uh between that and an interview under caution for example so what you've just described it sounds like a visit report or yes. something like that and, and as you as you, as you, you say they're very very common and they're not an interview under caution they're more a, an audit really that's what yeah. they are check up yeah. it's it's often it's often um you know in all honesty i've come across it there may be a previously disgruntled former transport manager or driver for example that may have reported something and the dvsa are then following up based on intelligence that they've received um and uh yeah oftentimes it the allegation may have been unfounded and the audit proves such for example but nonetheless they have to follow up on these things don't they so yeah and and, and so sort of what what does an interview under caution look like in comparison then so if, for example, that audit, they go through and they go through your raw tachograph data or they go through your, usually it's the tachograph data or something similar, and they find actually we've got all of these instances of drivers of this company have been um, maybe drive, driving without a card in or we've got vehicles being used without a card in or perhaps we've got a bunch of the drivers have CPCs which have expired or maybe the company itself has had MOTs um, missed and been using a vehicle without MOT. That's when 
as I said earlier, these matters are all technically criminal offences. And so the DVSA have to make a decision as to whether these are things that they need to prosecute or things they need to deal with through the regulatory arena or things they need to take no action on. So they've got to give the operator or the driver or whomever they want to speak to an opportunity to respond. And that's why an interview takes place, but it's under caution. And under caution mean is the standard wording, you do not have to say anything, it may harm your defence if you fail to mention when questioned, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason you're given that caution is because at that point, DVSA don't know what you're going to say and what your response is, and they don't know whether or not you're going to end up being prosecuted or no action at all. So they give you the formal caution and then they interview you using the standard um, procedure under the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. So they'll they'll write down, they'll ask you a set of questions, they'll show you the evidence, they'll ask you to respond, they'll write down the responses, and then they'll ask if you've got anything else to add. They may challenge your evidence. And at the end, that will be a formal interview that's taken place under caution. And that, uh, in the worst cases, will end up as Exhibit A in a Crown Court prosecution, or it might just end up before the Traffic Commissioner in a conduct hearing or a public inquiry. And so the role of a transport lawyer in that scenario is to get in touch with the DVSA beforehand, ask to see copies of the evidence, uh, the, whatever, whatever they want to put to my client, so that I know what the questions are going to be. I have a chance to speak to my client about those and find out what our response is. And very often they might say, we want to ask about these five things. And when you actually find out in advance what those things are and you have the chance to have that conversation, the operator might say, oh, yes, don't worry about that, because here's the explanation for that. And here is the evidence on file to show that that was not an issue at all. In which case we, we go to the interview under caution, we present the evidence and we would on that issue and we would hope to have that discontinued. And I, the, the, whilst a lawyer cannot, is not allowed to actually give answers on behalf of their client, they are allowed and indeed expected to help their client give their best evidence, um, make sure the interview is conducted fairly and that there's no abuse, which is quite rare, but occasionally it does happen. And also, to a certain extent, although this is outside the interview process, have a bit of a discussion or negotiation with the DVSA officer to get a bit of flavour as to which direction this is travelling, whether there's any alternative routes that this could go. Uh, and that's that's that would be the role in that situation. Fantastic. That's uh, that's actually really, really, really interesting. I um I, I suppose that the 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 stress the stress that your clients are under when when that happens, when that interview is going to happen and uh, and and I suppose that there's people who decide that they're not going to invest in a in a solicitor to help them or a lawyer sorry a lawyer to help them um and um actually there's a quite a lot that you can do to support and help someone in that situation to make sure that it goes in in a in a much more favorable favorable scenario because you've got the understanding you've got the experience you're able to help with those things and help to uh, negotiate and guide and have the understanding to be able to help people not to dig themselves a big massive hole which, uh, well, which they don't necessarily need to dig well I yeah you know, I've often I it's it's very frustrating when I when I get contacted at the public inquiry stage or maybe at the court prosecution stage and I go through the papers and I see the interview transcript of maybe a person who decided not to get represented and then you you speak to the client about it, and it turns out that they had an explanation all along, uh, but they just didn't know what they were going to be asked about in advance. They didn't really know what was expected and what evidence they needed to provide. And at that and and at that point, you can say, well, actually, this isn't anywhere near as bad as it appears. We we might not even have had to be here had we dealt with it properly at that early stage. Uh, but it's much much harder to deal with it much later. Because yeah, part of the wording of the caution is, uh, if you fail to mention when yeah, when questioned something you may later rely on in court, if, if you fail to mention it back then or fail to give your best evidence at that crucial interview under caution, and you later try to rely on it at court, 
then you get what's known as adverse inferences and it can be very much more difficult. So um, I would say this as a lawyer, but I would also say this as somebody with a lot of experience in transport. It's the most crucial opportunity you have. If you're being interviewed under caution, that's the opportunity to do everything you can to stop it escalating down the criminal route to get some help. Yeah, early intervention. Like with anything, early intervention is always the best yeah. way. Absolutely. And and usually the most cost effective anyway. So, um, you know, yeah, absolutely. Okay, fantastic. So one of the other points um, that we, we were going to look at was around illegal uh, migrant stowaways. So um, that's something that's uh, coming on the radar a little bit more, particularly yesterday was in was in the news because we had a record number coming across um, in, their, in their dinghies across the channel. So, um, yeah, talk to me a bit more about that sort of situation because operators can find themselves inadvertently in, in quite a lot of hot water. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, there's a distinction to be drawn here between the fairly small, more rare occurrences of um, some organised groups or operators who may be part of a deliberate attempt to smuggle illegal migrants into the country. So, for example, that absolutely tragic incident with uh, a couple of years ago, um, with a large number of dead illegal immigrants in the back of a, a container. So, I'm that that's that. Those are quite few and far between those situations, but they do happen. The far the far more common scenario is uh, operators who are bringing goods into the UK, bringing trailers, tractor units, and trailers into the UK, and are the victim of stowaways. There's a very, uh, well, it, it's, it's commonly in the news, the Road Haulage Association, Freight Transport Association, or Logistics UK as it is now, yes. have talked at length about this. In northern France, there is a migrant crisis. There are organised gangs, which both the French and the British police are doing the, their utmost to counter. And they are trying to assist um, illegal immigrants to break into the back of uh, trucks bound for the UK, hide them in there, and then they've gained unlawful entry into the UK. And the sophistication of these has been increasing over the years. And it's quite common that now you'll see examples of, of padlocks being cut and then super glued back together once they're back in. Um, some quite sophisticated entries, particularly from the roofs um, of some of these vehicles, which a driver couldn't possibly spot on a walk around check, uh, and all sorts of other methods. And unfortunately, if you're a an operator or driver and you, you come into, you get stopped at the UK immigration zone in Calais or in Dover, if you've got to the other side and you get inspected and it's found that you've got illegal immigrants inside your, your tractor unit, even if you've got no idea about it, you can face a fine of up to £2,000 per migrant. So if you've got 10 migrants in the back of your truck, you could be looking at £20,000. Wow. And sometimes you can get a lot more than 10 migrants in the back. And that only has to happen once for a fairly small operator for there to be a real risk to the business as a whole. Absolutely. And so what I do, well, I, part of my, my role is helping those operators present a case to the border force as to why these fines are excessive or shouldn't be levied. In other words, you will receive the fine unless you can show that you have effective systems and procedures in place to stop migrants getting in. So they expect things like a, a walk-around checklist, look at, um, specifically catered, not a defect check, but an actual checklist to make sure you don't have um, any signs of um, uh, forced entry or anything like that. Yeah. They expect written instructions and a company policy on these matters. They expect your vehicle to be secure. They expect you to have trained the driver on what's expected. They expect there to be a monitoring procedure. So it's quite quite a lot. And very often, an operator will have all of these things or a number of these things, but just uh, be unfamiliar with the process and not really know how to respond to it. Yes. And a, a part of my role is to help put together a case for why these penalties might be excessive. Sometimes you can make a case on financial hardship grounds. And I've had quite a lot of success in getting some very sizable penalties down, sometimes cancelled altogether and sometimes down to just a few hundred. Amazing. 
So it's it's an interesting area of law, and it's, it's only going to be increasing at the moment. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it, uh, I I totally agree. So it's a, it's a growing it's a growing challenge, isn't it, at the moment that I think operators are facing, and um, yeah, fa- fa- fascinating that you're able to really help by understanding the system, by understanding the process, help to uh, support operators with uh, with making sure that we can reduce those fines. Absolutely fantastic. Talk to me a bit more then about moving on to whilst we're talking about sort of borders and what have you, border force and truck seizures then. Uh-huh. Um, yes. Uh, what, what, what does that entail then, Chris? Well, this, uh, well, this is typically something that um, is, is less common in my experience than the others, but a lot of it relates to excise goods, so um, tobacco, alcohol, or some problem with the paperwork of a load, or maybe in some cases uh, a, a groupage load that's come into the UK might have, and I've come across it, you know, a pallet, which when you actually inspect it has got a bunch of cigarettes rather than the car parts, which it says on the manifest. And so unsurprisingly, if that happens, the border force will seize the tractor unit and the trailer and just all the goods and it'll all be held up and you can often find that there's maybe loads belong to three or four different customers in the back of that truck and um they've got no involvement in this they all they know is that their truck's been held their their loads being held so if i can be contacted sometimes by a customer I've had one a few years ago from Austria with a very crucial part of a, a manufacturing plant that needed to be delivered on time to a location in the UK. And they were at the stage where the, that, that part had been held up for three weeks because I think it was something as something like it was either cigarettes or drugs had been found in one of the loads in the trailer unit or something not connected to this customer. And they were at the point where they were almost going to have to manufacture a whole new part of this huge machine to get it shipped to the UK, just because this thing wasn't moving and they, and it was it was holding up a production line. And so a lot of it is trying to negotiate the release of that sort of thing as quickly as possible. Sometimes, if I'm approached by the haulier, it might be that the haulier has at the end of the day a haulier, particularly if they're picking up preloaded trailer but if they're pre- picking up goods that have been loaded by somebody else they are they're, they're they've got responsibility over what they're transporting but in reality it's imp- no it's impossible really it was very difficult for a driver to inspect each and every load particularly if they're wrapped or whatever and so often it's making representations to the border force for the release of that tractor unit and trailer by providing evidence that they that they'd done all they can to assess um, the load to make sure there wasn't anything untoward being carried. So it's a bit of a minefield. It's quite complicated when you've got these long supply chains with lots of different parties involved. And I suppose my job is to help tease that all out and try and get get the, get the goods back, get the vehicle back, whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely, and I think um, I think the, the the key thing there is you've got this complex supply chain, but at the end of it, there's a there's a, there's an operator who's really really suffering because the vehicle's tied up, uh, their trailer's tied up, the rest of the goods are tied up, and they're going to have penalties for the other goods and all of those challenges. So yeah, no, that's fantastic, uh, fantastic service that that is offered there. Amazing. Okay, so next up. I wanted to ask you a bit more about public inquiries, if that's okay, because I think uh, that's going to a lot of the listeners will get some real value from understanding that many, many may never have been in an inquiry, and they, uh, you know, it's something that's quite scary and 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 what have you. Rightly so, rightly so, obviously, uh, but it's just sort of day, daily daily stuff for you, Chris. Right? So, um, do you do you represent operators across all the different traffic areas? So you deal with all of the different traffic commissioners on a regular basis. Yeah, so um, Edinburgh Eastbourne is what I tend to say. I've every traffic area. The only place I, I don't typically go is Northern Ireland, um, and it has actually been a, a few months now. In fact, a little while since I was last up in up in Scotland. So, uh, but but typically I, I, I will cover every traffic area. It's such a niche area of law that you really you, you have to, you have to do that. Excellent. The 
So what, what is a public inquiry like? That's a very open-ended question, but I'm going to... Of course, to, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, it's absolutely fine. I'm going to try and answer it as best I can. I suppose listeners are going to be most interested in what it is practically like for them, what, what's, what's, what's the experience like. So we've talked about it starts off with the scary letter and the list of uh, things they're not very happy about. Then it will include in that letter a list of your documents and that you need to send to the traffic commissioner before the hearing uh, and that can be a little bit unnerving itself having to collect your last 12 months of maintenance records and tachographs and send them all into the regulator um, it's always a bit of a, a, a stressful experience and then at the inquiry itself the, the best it is a court hearing ultimately the traffic commissioner will sit up on a bench with a request behind him. There'll be a clerk in the room usually, and then there'll be uh, there'll be the operator, any transport manager, any DSA examiner who's present as a witness, any other witnesses in the room. Obviously, if you're legally represented, lawyer in the room. Uh, there might be members of the public in the back. It's a public inquiry, so you could have you could have any anybody walking in. Uh, Typically, members of the public find better things to do at their time than to turn up at a public inquiry, <laughs> but it does happen. Uh, it, you also might get journalists there occasionally if it's an important enough case. Yeah. Particularly with passenger transport, you might get members of the local authority there to, because if it, they've got contracts with that operator to carry their, their school kids, they're going to want to know what's happening. Of course. And you might also have a driver present if there's a, a driver conduct element to it. So it can be a pretty big experience. Of course, yeah. And it's a formal setting. So the traffic commissioner comes in, the courts, every, everybody stands, wait to be seated, and then remain seated throughout, typically. And it's, it, it, it's, the, the key point, I suppose, I would say is it is an inquiry. The, the clue's in the name. It's not a criminal hearing. It's an inquiry. So the traffic commissioner is entitled and will inquire into any area they want to speak to. And they've got control over the format of that, that hearing. So some traffic commissioners will take a very formal approach to it. They will say, well, here are the issues I'm unhappy about. I'll listen to some opening submissions from your lawyer, perhaps. I then want to hear from the DBSA officer. You then have the opportunity to cross-examine that officer if you disagree with their evidence. They then want to hear from any other witness. They then want to hear from the uh, the operator or whomever. And if they're legally represented, the lawyer will take them through their evidence in chief, not being allowed to ask any leading questions. And uh, it's a very formal setting in some cases, uh, and it can the commissioner will ask questions directly of the operator they will take an active role in questioning questioning anybody they want to in the room it's not like a, a judge in a trial who will typically sit back let the advocates um go through the evidence the jury present listening and then the judge being largely impartial the traffic commissioner will get involved and it can be quite challenging at times other traffic commissioners take a slightly different approach and the hearing is more flexible. They will be happy for the lawyer to take more of an active role in presenting their client's case. They might be happy to hear from witnesses at different times to as required as the evidence goes on. And sometimes the hearing can be can be quite challenging. Um, different commissioners take a different approach and some can be quite robust and can robustly challenge an operator and sometimes the lawyer if they don't agree with the submissions and it can be a very stressful experience other times it's it's a little bit less so and then at the end closing submissions will be made uh, there's the opportunity to address the traffic commission on things like what effect this any decision might have on the business uh, any reference to statutory guidance documents in other words what what the in, in the criminal arena, you'd call it sentencing guidelines, but statutory guidance on what sort of action the traffic commissioner could take. You could refer to various bits of other tribunal case law. And then at the end, the traffic commissioner will either make a decision there and then, or will 
release a written decision in due course. So that's that's a an, a big picture overview of how a public inquiry actually functions. Excellent, excellent. I think um, it's uh, it, obviously it's very broad depending on what the subject is and and and, and, and that kind of thing. I think uh, one of the questions I've got for you is with the experience with the different traffic commissioners, what that there's different styles by the sounds of it of how how relaxed they are about how that process is carried out. Uh, I suppose that that will also depend on the severity of the of the inquiry, for example, whether it is we need more information about this O license application where potentially there's no there's no allegation of any wrongdoing. It may just be that it, it needs more information. They're not quite happy to sign off on an O license, for example. Um, I suppose that's a bit more of a, a question and answer, a more relaxed situation, for example, is that? Absolutely, absolutely. If, it, if it, some inquiries can be can be all over in 15 minutes, it's very rare, but it, I, I've had some cases where actually uh, this, this, the confusions that arose during an application process, there's a perfectly innocent explanation. If you put in some written submissions in advance, you can explain it all. And a public inquiry in those cases can be little more than turning up and the commissioner saying, well, I'm, I've looked through this. I'm largely happy with how things go. Is there anything else you want to add? I've gone through your records and perhaps I don't have any concerns. Uh, and it, that, that's it. And it's much more flexible and, and more informal. Other times, if a wheel's come off on the M6, and if if thousands of missing mileage have been found on your tachograph unit or whatever, then it's going to be a much more like a formal court setting. It can almost feel like a crown court trial at times. Um, so it's it, the whole spectrum. Yeah, excellent. Which I suppose makes it so interesting for you as a as as, as a person who who gets to go and. Uh, represent operators in in these public inquiries it's quite an interesting place to be i suppose and it's yes. very varied in the in the role and the, and the and the way in which you get to carry out your work which i think is amazing okay so just sort of uh, i guess sort of closing questions from me could you just let me know a bit more about maybe what most rewarding or most challenging case has been previously i suppose um records are publicly available but at the same time i don't know if you need to Client confidentiality or what have you, but share as much as you're able to, I suppose. <laughs> I think as long as I don't name names, I should be okay. okay. Uh, Good. But let's start with some ch a challenging one, uh, only because it, they tend to be the, the ones people are interested in. I did have a case, I think it was a scaffolding company a couple of years, no, only about a year ago, a bit longer than that, whatever it was. And uh, uh, it was a challenging case from the get go. Remember those drivers' hours issues, maintenance problems. Um, there'd been a history of operating without a license. There'd been a history of a bunch of different companies. It, it from the from the outset, it was a real challenge. But we we'd managed to do quite a bit to turn things around. And there was we we were we were had the odds stacked against us, but we were hopeful we would be able to scrape through. And then about a day before the public inquiry was due, I received an email from the commissioner's office to let me know that, was I aware that my client uh, a few years previously had been uh, convicted of quite a serious criminal offence, which hadn't been declared, that I was entirely unaware of. And uh, and it was quite a serious offence. Um, and uh, at that point, I think I was sitting in my hotel room prior to the, the hearing, because it was, I'd, I'd stayed the night for some reason. And I, I thought, ah, oh, well, that's that's going to make a very, very difficult case, possibly, possibly insurmountable. Uh, and, and certainly it didn't, it didn't go, didn't go too well in the end. But you often find that kind of development at the last minute, things will suddenly pop up. And, uh, and, and so it always helps if, if, uh, if if that is something, it, it's more helpful for the, your own lawyer to be aware of these things. I, I say, of course. If yeah. I don't know about them, there's the opportunity for me for us to be blindsided. Whereas if we knew about it at an earlier stage, we can sometimes do things about that. Uh, so that's a challenging one. Um, I bet. Uh, the more rewarding ones, rather than any particular one, to be honest, it's just a good feeling where. And this goes back to what we discussed earlier. It's a good feeling when you've got an operator who is 
fundamentally trying to run a decent business, but something's gone wrong. Um, maybe maybe uh, the person who used to manage their transport has retired, or maybe there's been a personnel problem, or maybe the company's grown too fast and has failed to keep up with compliance, or, or whatever it is, sometimes things just go wrong through no, no intention. And you reach a stage where uh, the an operator realizes, gets that horrible moment of realization when the DVSA come knocking on the door that things have got gone on wrong. And if at that point I get a call, I'm able to go in, I'm able to help them out, talk through what's gone wrong, come up with a plan about what we're going to do to fix it, and be in a position by the time of the public inquiry to say to the traffic commissioner that, yes, if we, we might accept that what happened happened and it was entirely inadvertent. It was a wake-up call at the point this came to our attention and we've acted quickly, effectively and meaningfully to turn this business around and to make sure that all the compliance issues are dealt with. The traffic commission is usually very amenable to that. and they're, they're not a criminal court. They're not about guilt or innocence and punishment. They're about, can I trust this operator going forward to operate compliantly? And if, as, a, as an advocate, if you've advised early and you've, you've got the evidence to support the case that you're making, and you can show that this person can be trusted, and the traffic commissioner agrees with you and lets, your, lets the business to continue, maybe with minor action taken, that is a very rewarding feeling, and it's it's is obviously great for the for the client, and it's but it's great for 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 the advocate because it means you've maybe been part of saving a business that might employ lots of people, might have a long history, might be a family business. Keeping them on the road is is a great feeling, and and yeah. so that's 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 what makes the job worthwhile. Oh, amazing, oh. amazing! I think um, that's a. Uh... It's definitely, definitely must be such a rewarding thing to be able to support with. I, uh, I, I, th I think I, I've thought of one final closing question, yeah. which I think is a bit more fun, a bit more fun question. So when, if I was in your position, I, this is probably more a reflection on me than it is on you. Um, I would definitely get the reward out of, out of supporting operators in the way you do. And I know I, I, know I sort of have a, 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 a relatively similar role in, in sort of managing uh, managing. Uh, clients on a day-to-day -day basis with their compliance but um i think if i was in your position with the information i would have a bit of a game with myself as to guess what the outcome's going to be or what i expect the outcome's going to be and i bet you've got pretty good at it depending on who the traffic commissioner is and what the offense is um is that something you do i i think i think every lawyer has a has a feeling as to where something might be going but i have to heavily caveat with that that uh, you can really be surprised at times. I've I've had cases where I've I've thought uh, I I really think we've got I want a hell of a fight on our hands, and I've been surprised at actually we we it, it's it's not been anywhere near as as bad as as I had anticipated. I've also had cases where I've I felt quietly confident and unfortunately been been rudely surprised. Uh, so yes, certainly over time you learn, you learn your practice, you learn what likely outcomes are going to be. Uh, but at the back of my mind, I, I, I am always wary that you never stop learning in this job, and Absolutely. you can always, always be surprised. Absolutely, fantastic. Uh, it's been great to meet you, Chris, uh, properly, and to and to have you on the on the podcast as well. And it's great to see. That the the things that you're passionate about are, are shared, uh, particularly amongst people who listen to the podcast, and and certainly myself as well, about helping helping family run operators and transport operators to stay in business, keep people employed, and to keep the roads safe, uh, which is ultimately uh, ultimately our goal, right? So, um, thank you very much for joining me, Chris. Um, yeah, it's if, been an absolute pleasure. If people want to sort of get in touch with you or uh, get in touch with Rotherus, uh, how how do they do so? How can you help them? Where, where do they find you? Is it LinkedIn the best place to come and find you? Um, and uh, how do they get in touch? Uh, so anyway, really, I'm, I am on LinkedIn, but also the Rotherus website, uh, you'll find me if you type my name into, I tend to find if you type Chris Powell, transport lawyer or solicitor into Google, I'll usually pop up somewhere. 
or likewise it might be my contact details can be attached to this podcast or this uh, or, or the the um the, the visual version of it I'm, I'm sure there must be a way of that happening yeah absolutely so I, I will share your contact details on on the podcast too chris so yeah it Finally, thank you very much for giving up uh, giving up your time to join me. It's been absolutely fascinating. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you to everyone listening. We'll catch you again soon. I really hope you loved today's episode. And if you did, please make sure you subscribe and listen out for future episodes too. Please do share it across your social media channels. We hope to reach more and help more people. If you want to find out more about me, my name's Pete Rushmer. You'll find me across any social media channel and my business, Flagship Partners, and we're your partners in success across your business. Thank you. See you again soon.